We're going to begin in the book of Jonah. If you have a copy of the scriptures, Jonah chapter 4 to be precise. And I, I believe it's a passage of scripture that, that not only is appropriate for our day, but prophetic for what I believe needs to happen inside of us to be properly postured to minister in our day. Now, of course, when you think of Jonah, and I'm sure many of you did not see that coming. Okay, so you're going to speak to race and speak to discrimination and speak to give a message that is hopefully going to help make us help us make sense of of, of, of these events that we've been seeing. And, and to do so, you want to talk about a guy swallowed by a whale. It's a stretch, Pastor. Actually, I want to talk about what happened after that. And I want to talk about even what happened after what happened after that. You see, because Jonah famously did not obey God. And yes, he was swallowed by a whale. And then he was spit out on a beach. And then the word of God came to him once again to do something. And this time he did it and was obedient to do it even though it still wasn't his heart to do it. And so when he finally did do that thing, which happened to be preaching the gospel in what was then the most significant city in the world, and by all standards of comparison, the equivalent would, be, would need to be preaching in the middle of New York City in our day, except that city, New York City, was populated by people who hated Jonah more than anybody on the earth and had probably, in a cruel and vicious fashion, put to death people that Jonah loved. And so Jonah begrudgingly, but eventually, did go to Nineveh and preach. And historians and students of the Bible have declared what happened next to be the, if not, if not the, one of the biggest revivals that have ever happened in history. As the some 600,000 person city, nearly to a person, repented at the word of God and trusted in the God of the Bible. And I want to talk to you about what happened next. For scripture says that Jonah was angry when he saw the people repent. So he went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, 
you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock. I want to give to you a message beginning here in Jonah 4 that I'm calling the upper hand. The upper hand. It's a phrase that has helped me to understand as I've been looking and studying and seeking to understand the events of our day, the anger of our day that has led there to be across the nation and now even spilling out into the world, protests, both peaceful and violent, both those who are full of pain and those who are seeking to exploit in the midst of this a free TV or a free pair of shoes or whatever, but the anger and pain, the, the grief and the agony that has captured the attention of our world has at its roots an understanding that has been exposed of those within the black community in our country that they matter less, that their lives aren't as important and are not valued by the system that exists in our country. And when we talk about systemic racism, and when we talk about white privilege, and when we talk about the black lives mattering or not mattering, or should we then argue that all lives matter, this instantly causes everything to tighten, causes everyone to become defensive. When we speak about race, and there's the accusation and the insinuation then of racism, and when we bring these subjects up, there can be the immediate locking down. I've seen it. I watched it. I saw in one post 1,000 people unfollow my Instagram page for me simply and, and succinctly saying, saying what I stand by, and that is that black lives matter. Not that other lives don't matter or that black lives are the only ones that matter. But my statement, what I do believe here today, is that black lives matter. Black people matter. They should matter to you. They matter to God. They matter. And that posting of that image caused instant fighting and anger and, and, and accusation. One person told me, because I said that, everything I've ever done for God does not count anymore. And every book I've ever written does not count anymore. And they will never listen to my ministry again because I am obviously a false prophet for saying and stating that black lives matter. Now, when we feel the tension and feel the anger and, 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 and watch people just begin to, what are we seeing? We are seeing the same forces at work that led to the deadliest war the United States ever fought. Not World War I, the trenches and the no man's land strewn across Europe. Not World War II and Japan and Germany at the same time descending upon England, descending upon 
the United States soldiers, the deadliest war, the deadliest conflict in our nation's history was the Civil War, where we fought with ourselves over the treatment of black lives. And we are quick, many of us, to argue how much has changed as we fight and tear one another apart over the treatment of black lives. And those wanting to rush in and talk about how police lives matter, too, and look, yes. And if I posted police lives matter, I think I would hope that as a Jesus person, you would say, yeah, they do. And if I posted that Eskimo lives matter, my hope and heart would be that you would be like, well, of course they do. Eskimos are, we, Eskimos are, they're, they're, they're meaningful before God. If I, if I said that, 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 that people who love football matter, my hope, my heart, that would be that all of us would have the spirit to say, of course they do. They, they, everybody has, but, but singling out one group that's hurting to celebrate, to honor, the, to grieve with should by no means make us feel defensive. But why do we feel that? Why do, why do sometimes the reactions come out that way? I believe that the words that explain it well for many and not most, many but maybe not all, is in fact, I know it's true for me, an idea that, that we need to come to terms with, and that is white privilege. Now, I realize even using buzzwords, there's a whole Google search that's done and associations that are made. But I heard Miles McPherson, a pastor in San Diego, put it beautifully when he said that if you're left-handed, you live in a world that, for the most part, was catered to right-handed people. So there's an automatic disadvantage to being born in this nation left-handed. You find many things are clumsy for you that are not clumsy for a right-handed person. If you're right-handed like me, you're, priv you're privileged just by virtue of being born in this world the way you were. To understand and to come to terms with the concept that is being communicated that, to me, rings true of experience. And that is to say that in this country, being born Caucasian puts you at, a dis at, an, adv as a, as, at an advantage, puts you at a place uh, where you have certain things that, that are going to be easier for you that you never have to think about. And now, in saying black people are at a disadvantage in this country, that's not to say that there aren't white people that have disadvantages, nor is it to say that any other groups don't have disadvantages. I think there's lots of different groups that can be disadvantaged in, in this country. But to be born black in America does put you at a disadvantage, does start you out on first base where being Caucasian maybe puts you on third base. And that's a fact. And the data bears that out. It's not a level playing field. That is what is meant by the idea of white privilege, that whites have the upper hand. Being white, there's an upper hand you have in education, in the schools you have access to, the neighborhoods you are likely to grow up in, the rates of uh, being put into prison, the ability to access certain jobs. That's, and you're, you're saying to yourself, well, what about, what about, what about? There's exceptions to every rule. But the rule is, in this country, to be born black is to be at a disadvantage. It's to be withheld at the, at the starting line 
while others people uh, while others get a running start. That's what this pain is over. Uh, a system that rewards whiteness in our country. And that should break our hearts to think about. That should that should cause us to 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 not feel bad but to let that sink in, to be aware. And what I want to talk to you about today is not whether or not you have privilege. You need to look into that on your own. Think about that on your own. Look into some of the things that I mentioned and so many resources that exist. What I want to do is tell you that you should pray about what God wants you to do with your privilege. That's, that's what this message is. This isn't trying to argue you, you into telling you you have privilege or don't, because there, there, you might be black and have privilege. Really, if you think about it, being born in America, regardless of your, your skin color, does put you at an advantage and does put you into a privileged, privileged place. You could have been born into the slums of Nepal. You could have, so we are privileged not just for being white if you're white. There are people watching this broadcast, and you're not Caucasian, but you're privileged in different ways. If you have a good family, if you have been shown love, if you've had good friends around you, if you, there, there's lots of, if you're healthy, we, we all have privilege. And I want to say that God wants us to think differently about how we use our privilege. That's what this message is about. I want to encourage you to leverage your privilege for others and for the kingdom of God. I want to encourage you to utilize your privilege, to not feel ashamed of it, to not be, be territorial of it, but with an open hand to steward the privilege you have to bless other people. My friend Dr. Darius Daniel said that so many of us are scared of the conversation because we think that the goal is for us to lose our privilege, when really the goal is for us to use our privilege. And the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy just gets smaller. So instead of holding on to it, I think we should steward it and use it for good and not for evil. I have four points that I hope you'll jot down. And the first is that justice matters to God. I want you to understand that when we talk about oppression, when we talk about racism, when we talk about people being taken advantage of or people not being given a fair shake in a country where we celebrate the idea of liberty that is not equitably given to everyone. But justice matters to God. It is not just what he does. It is also who he is. Yes, God is just. It's one of his attributes. But it's also his name. God is, Psalms tells us. He is a defender of the widow and a defender of the orphan. Who is God? A father to the fatherless. That's who he is. It's, it's, his, his na- it's literally in his name. Moses said, what's your name? What do I, who do I call you? What, do I, what am I supposed to call you, God? And he said, proclaiming his name, my name is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is still his name. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wicked rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. It's a very long name. So God 
does not just act just, he is just. It's who he is, not just what he does. So justice matters to God. Isaiah 58, verse 6 through 9. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? I, I preached on this at the beginning of the year. God's repulsed by fasting that's not mixed with justice. The kind of fasting I have chosen is to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer your cry. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger, and malicious talk. So first point, justice matters to God. Second point, reconciliation is an ongoing assignment. Ongoing to the present day. What do I mean by that? I mean when Christ on the cross paid for the sins of the world and perished, and then rose from the dead, what he unleashed was reconciliation that's powerful to reconcile, but the effects have to be carried about by change agents called his church, and ultimately and eventually his spirit, which will breathe that reconciliation of all things unto himself, this planet, this world, this universe at all, will be reconciled. Between now and then, and the tension that we live in, in the already but not yet, it's already been, been unleashed by the cross, but the effects of it were meant to be the agents of that reconciliation, to reconcile all things. This is what is meant in Ephesians 2, when he says, Paul does, and you he made alive through what? The cross, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now we're like, yay, I'm saved. It's great, I've been reconciled. But we are meant not meant to stop at salvation, but to start at salvation, to let that salvation that gave new life to us spill over in, into everything, including into relations with other races, which he continues, if you just jump a few verses ahead in Ephesians 2, therefore remember that you, who were once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called mockingly, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. What's that? It's a slur. That at that time, you were without Christ, being alien from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. What did he do? He made both into one, the outcast and those who were the insiders, and he's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the entity, that one new man from the two, thus making peace, and then he might reconcile. What is it? Reconciliation. Them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preach peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. The races that we know of today were a curse that came from Babel. 
It was just one mankind, different colors, different shades for sure, but just one, one humanity, one mankind. But the sin and the pride and the idolatry led to what we know of today as the discord of races. But the act of the cross began the end of that. You saw a glimpse of it in, on, on Pentecost. And Peter preached, and when the Holy Spirit fell, in all these different languages, they all spoke one tongue again, just for a moment, a reversal of Babel, an acting of, of one made out of many. Now, that was where it all began at the cross. You're like, well, that's good then. It's all done then. Well, not at all. Because flash forward just a couple days, and, and Peter doesn't want to go preach the gospel to a Gentile, Acts 10. And Peter, in his dream, doesn't want to eat bacon because he's still holding on to his culture, holding on to his stuff. And God had to tell him very, in, in no uncertain terms, eat the bacon, Peter. <laughs> in Acts 10, Peter said, now I know for certain that God does not show favoritism with people, but treats everyone on the same basis. Yes. Well, it's good then. Peter learned that the hard way. He opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles using the keys that Jesus gave him in Matthew's gospel. It should be fine then, except Reconciliation is an ongoing assignment. Because that same Peter, who's now I know, Galatians chapter 2, when Peter came to Antioch, this is after Acts 10, I opposed him, Paul said, to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Because when certain men would come from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Discrimination, prejudice in action because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined in in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Peter, as a leader, allowed a system which profiled and treated differently those of a different ethnic background. So he had to have lovingly Paul get into his face to remind him this is not right, that we are moving towards reconciliation, and have, we have to fight for it. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that racism hasn't gone away. It's just gone underground. In our day, it's easy to think, and I've thought it, man, that was crazy that we used to have slaves. It was horrible and awful. I can't believe it. You read a biography of Jefferson or George Washington, or you read even a Christian author like Jonathan Edwards, and you're like, how did they have slaves? How did they, you know, it's like, that seems like so long ago, but it wasn't that long ago. It was three people ago, if you think about it. Three people ago. Three lifetimes stacked together ago. People owned people in our country. But what about when slavery, the slave trade ended? Well, slavery endured. They had the sense to get rid of the slave trade, but slavery endured. What happens? Slave, racism just changed. Didn't go anywhere, just, just morphed, just adapted. What about when slavery ended? Well, black people were still not considered human, even after slavery ended. Well, what about when the Emancipation Proclamation and 13th Amendment gave way to the 14th Amendment, and, and then black people had the status of being human beings? Yay for us, America. We decided that black people are, lo and behold, actual human beings, thus not property. Well, then it got arguably uglier for black people than ever. The Jim Crow South and subjugation and being lynched and being burned and bombs blowing up in churches, exploding Sunday school classes, being imprisoned, 
slaves in all but name, entrapped and arrested under minor petty offenses, treated horribly. Yeah, but then, then Dr. King marched and the nation rallied. I saw Forrest Gump. And, and then in, in 64, Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. And, and he put into law that you can't have a colored water fountain and a, a white water fountain. And the, the black people don't have to sit at the back of the bus anymore. So thank God we sorted all that out. And to think that it hasn't been 70 years from a sign over a water fountain that says whites only. And for you and I to go, but racism is a thing of the past. We're beyond all that. Racism will never disappear until heaven. It will always just adapt and find a new way. And what's being exposed and what's being spoken about and what's being righteously protested is the fact that in our day, the ugliness, the evil that began at Babel, that, that w w warped its way all through history, including our history, is still very much happening today. And black people in America do not have the same rights and privileges that Thomas Jefferson spoke about as being rights, God-given rights for every single person that he created. And in our day, there is unfair treatment. And we have watched it with our own eyes now as it's being filmed, as there's cell phone cameras everywhere. When these videos started coming out, it wasn't as though this began happening. It was just being documented. And we all have to ask the question, what's not being documented? And as I've been talking to my friends who are black and asking them and, and trying to understand this more, my heart's been broken. And I think that's how we hopefully all feel. And it's caused us to need to realize if it hasn't gone anywhere, it's just adapting, where is it showing up in our day? In biases? and prejudices, and discriminatory systems that hold certain people back, it's gone covert. And something's always the deadliest when you don't know it's there. And so I think Jesus' people have an obligation to be continual agents of the cross, speaking the reconciliation into the world that he's called us to. Exposing the lies, especially when they're sneaky and crafty and deflecty. I think about Moses. It's not commonly known that Moses married a, a woman from Ethiopia. And his sister and brother did not like this interracial marriage. No brother of ours should marry a black woman and defile and all that. Only what they chose to do was craft their objections in, in veiled spiritual ease. And I want you to read Numbers 12, 2, when they began to argue about whether or not God has spoken through Moses. So their actual issue is who he married, a black woman. But what they chose to do is, is, is Moses really speaking for God? Do you see how crafty that is? They want to just all in all outright say they didn't like the marriage. So they found some other thing to complain about. The Lord heard what they said. And in verse 10, it says, the cloud departed from above the tabernacle. Suddenly, Miriam, Moses' sister, became leprous. 
as white as snow. And there she was, a leper. She got what she wanted. I want a white wife for my brother. I want a white wife for my brother. God said, what, you want white? I'll give you white. Her skin became deathly white. And that's what happens when something manifests itself in our lives in a way that we don't acknowledge it, pretend it's not there, explain away, rationalize. It leads to death, which is why we need to believe that God's called us to be a part of putting to death these sinful things in our day through the power of the cross. Number three, God is going to do this. He will work with or without us. So whether or not you choose to be a part of the solution or a part of the problem, whether you choose to fight for the oppressed, which is in God's heart or not, the church of Jesus Christ throughout all eternity, giving him praise and glory, will be, Revelations 5, from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the future. Equal, not separate, just equal before the throne all bought with the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for them on the cross. That's God being glorified. Every tribe, skin color, eye shape, body shape, every hair, texture, all bringing God glory, beautiful and perfect as he intended them to be before him. White isn't normal. That's the problem us white people have. We tend to think white, thus default, majority. Other things are different. We're normal. But there is no normal. There's just everything God created. That's where it's heading, and that's where it's going. The question is, will you and I be a part of it, take part in it? For make no mistake, as Mordecai spoke to Esther, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position. Or you could say, he said, you've come to royal privilege. Don't argue whether you have privilege or not. Ask, how can I leverage my privilege for other people? Esther didn't go, I'm not privileged. She lived in a palace. She had privileges. Mordecai says, it's not even bad that you have privilege. You don't need to lose your privilege. Use your 300 thread count sheets and take your bubble bath. Honey, just use your privilege for other people. If you don't act, God's going to get it done, church. Fresh life. If, if we don't rise up to be agents of reconciliation in our day, God will get it done. But who knows if he didn't give you your privilege for such a time as this. When we were preparing to do work on the building I sit in now, the historic Liberty Theater in Kalispell, Montana, we were looking how to best restore this 100-year-old theater to its original glory, exposing brick, maintaining the aesthetic from the street, the curb appeal. We had architects who were doing lots of work in records and newspapers and archives to find any photos we could uh, from 100 years ago of what the facade looked like before it was altered so we could bring it back to its former glory, to f flourish it so we, could, so we could flourish, return to its former glory. And one of the images that I'm going to show you in a moment that they sent to us turned my stomach over 
for it revealed, as was advertised in the newspaper, an event that was coming up to be hosted in this building where I sit even at this moment. And here's what was sent to us by the architect. K, K, K. Dr. H.W. Evans of Atlanta, Georgia, Imperial Wizard of Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, will give a, le a lecture on Americanism at the Liberty Theater, Kalispell, Friday, August 1st, 8.30 o'clock PM. Children under 15 years of age not admitted. Admission free. And the part that made me sick to my stomach, don't miss it. This is Dr. H.W. Evans in his outfit as the wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. The highest roles registered included 5,100 members of the Klan in Montana. Who is, Dr. Who is this H.W. Evans? He led a group of Klan members in Dallas, Texas for a while that included, as his tenure as leader, the kidnapping and torture of a black man while his time there. But when he became the imperial wizard, he discouraged publicly any vigilante actions for fear it would hinder his political influence nationally. He presided over the largest Klan gathering in history, attended by over 200,000 people, and organized a Klan march of 30,000, the largest Klan march in the history of the organization. And the stage I stand on, that man stood upon and gave a talk of vitriol and hatred and racism about what, in his warped, sinful mind, it meant to really be an American. And as much as I hate that it happened, it is with profound gratitude that I stand here today on the same stage, in the same building, and actually want to proclaim true liberty for Americans, and want to speak the love of Jesus to heal and touch wounds caused by such things that still have not gone away but exist in our day, in systems, in disadvantageous forms of policing and forms of corporations and, and, and way neighborhoods are, are, are shown by real estate agents and the access to schools, to access to loans, access to food in our day by populations that are supposedly equal but find a very different quality of life in our day. We are called to be soldiers of the cross, not guarding our privilege, but using it for the good of others and for the kingdom. Make no mistake, not only will he work without us, but listen to me, we are all accountable for what we do with what we've been given. We will all stand before God, one talent, two talent, 10 talents, 
I'm not arguing, and I will, I will not argue with you about whether or not you're privileged to be white in our country. I think the data makes that pretty useless to even discuss. It's clear that there is privilege, and I have it. And I'm aware, and I hope you are, that we will stand before God and give an account of what we did with any privileges we were given. There is, in history, no people that seem to have such an upper hand as the Babylonians. They became this great, fierce nation devouring other nations. They were corrupt. They were evil. In the book of Habakkuk, they were given five woes by God. God spoke woe to this nation with the upper hand that was using it for evil and not for good. I want to read a couple of the woes to you. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. But this oppression was mixed with idolatry. And the outcome of idolatry is often oppression. As you steal to get, but then you have to to, to, to do even more evil, to keep what you stole. And it's because you're worshiping other things other than God. That's what's behind any, any, in a, any oppression, idolatry. So woe, the final woe is, woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or lifeless stone, wake up. Can that thing you've made give guidance? Is it covered with gold and silver? There is no, don't miss it, breath in it. None of the idols that we would worship that would cause us to want to oppress others to gain can help us, for there's no breath in them. The only time we break any of the Ten Commandments is because we broke the first one already. We would never take a life. We would never take something that's not ours. We would never tell a lie. We would never cover our neighbor's wife if we weren't first breaking the first commandment. So these woes on oppression all are driven by the heart of them worshiping the wrong God. And the woes, woe, woe, woe to those oppressing who aren't listening. Woe, woe, woe. The prophecy came to fruition in Daniel chapter 5, when at the helm of the nation was a man named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar not only oppressed and not only stole and not only murdered and plundered and worshiped false gods, but he actually defiled the temple in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon all of the gold and silver and all these other vessels that were used in the temple in the Old Testament. And he threw a raging orgy and used the holy vessels from God's temple as a way to cheers his false gods who have no breath in them. And in that moment, Daniel chapter 5, we're told that as he began to lift up his glass to the false gods, a hand severed from its wrist began to show up on the wall above his throne and began to write on the wall above his head. And when the king saw it, he began to tremble and began to, to, to fear, not understanding this hand, this upper hand that showed up in this moment. He thought he was the top dog. Turns out there was someone higher. And as God spoke and wrote, the king quickly called for someone who could decipher it. His mother said, get Daniel, get Daniel. From the lion's den, yeah, get Daniel. Daniel came in. 
And he spoke this. Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from his temple brought to you and to your nobles, your wives, your concubines. They drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what was written, meeny, meeny, tekel, farsen, which mean God, means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to others. And that, verse 30, very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Belshazzar thought he had the upper hand. And he worshiped a god with no breath and ignored the god who held his breath in his hand. And the oppression in our day, which has come to a point while we watched an unjust system that allowed us to see a man whose breath was smothered from his life before our eyes. We are seeing the outworking of oppression in our day. And the solution is to look to the one who put the breath into our lungs. And to remember that regardless of what we've been given or not given to steward, he's the one with the upper hand. And he wants us to use what's in our hand to extend a hand to our fellow man, to extend that grace and to extend that care and empathy and kindness to those who are not like us, and to make their fight our fight, and to care as though they were us for they are our sister and they are our brother, knowing we will be accountable for how we treated our neighbor. As C.S. Lewis said, this does not mean we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And of course, we know our neighbor is not just the person who lives next door, and that is oftentimes in our day, people just like us. Our neighbor is anyone who needs help from us, that we have the capacity to give help to. So First Life, what do we do? What do we do? I wrote down a few things. We Number one, we ask ourselves difficult questions. What are my prejudices? We all have them. To say I'm not prejudiced is a lie. I'm prejudiced. We all have certain prejudices. What are my biases? How has this happened in my family? How has this worked out in our day? What have I, what have I seen? What have I tolerated? What have I laughed at? What have I forwarded on? What have I reposted that breaks the heart of God? Number two, repent where there's sin. Repent where there's oppression in your own life. 
Number three, have brave conversations. Conversations with people who aren't like you to help so they can help you see life through their eyes. Brave conversations to confront the subtle racism that pops up in conversations with family members at the dinner table or wherever you see it. Brave conversations. Number, number four, educate yourself. Read, look into these things. If something I've read has piqued an interest, if you want to read about the Jim Crow South, read about the slave trade, read about these things, read about the civil rights movement. Don't just post a little meme on Martin Luther King Day. Read speeches he wrote in their entirety. Read and look into these things. The empirical evidence that has come from many different universities to support the things that we've referenced here today are not just one slanted news source or another. But, but I think in a day of hummingbird across the internet, we need to read books, read things, read deeply, inform ourselves on these things. Then take action. Pray, which is action. Protest, which is action. Vote, which is action. Reaching out, which is action. Speaking up, which is action. Volunteering, which is action. You can't do everything, but we can all do something. Is there someone we can mentor? Is there someone we can help? Is there an organization we can serve? How can we help at-risk youth in our day? We as a church are committed to reaching into the prison systems, not just in Montana, but beyond, because so many minorities have been, some justly, some unjustly, incarcerated. And regardless, we want to show the love of Jesus to them and their families. Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. All of these things that I've mentioned and this entire sermon is uncomfortable. I should have started with that. Just letting you know. I didn't want to tell you from the beginning, though. It's uncomfortable. Anything that we're going to do that's going to move us forward is going to be uncomfortable. Here's why. Because it takes courage and willing to be uncomfortable to change. And that is the point of Jonah 4. Jonah who didn't care about a half a million people he hoped would just die and go to hell, cared about a plant that gave him shade. So God sent a worm. That's Lennox's favorite noise. He asked for it every night at bedtime. The plant was destroyed by the worm, and Jonah was more upset about the plant than about the loss of life. And I'm concerned for some of you who have been more angry about a comment on Instagram than about someone's life being snuffed out. And that the issue you want to talk about is about your comfort at the end of the day. Can we just get back to everything being comfortable? Can we just get back to normal? Can we just get back? But what if? God doesn't want us to get back to what's comfortable. He wants us to endure being uncomfortable and have the courage to encounter that so that things can change, so that we can be compassionate, not about our little plant coming back over our head, but about the souls of men and women, boys and girls who are not experiencing liberty, but God has blessed us so we can bless them. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jonah did next. And what I tell Lennox every night at bedtime is we don't need to know what Jonah did next. It ends with a question. Do their lives not matter? All you care about is your plant. All you care about is your comfort. Do their lives not matter? The point of the book of Jonah is not what did Jonah do. It's what will we do. 
And the Holy Spirit of God sent me to preach this message in part because of me reading that many white pastors in 1963 urged Dr. King not to stop his crusade, just to be reasonable, they said. Stop marching, stop protesting. This is all so crazy. I don't want to see it on the news. Let's just get back to life. They said, we, we like what you're doing. We know it's important. Just trust the system. It'll take time. The, vote, the laws will change. No, he understood that the reasonable man, as Shaw put it, bends his will to the world. But the unreasonable man conforms the world to his will. And so Dr. King was willing to be unreasonable because all progress, Shaw said, depends on the unreasonable man. And I don't think God's calling us to be reasonable. Just, 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 let's just be close. Everybody calm down. There's a time to be righteously angry. There's a time to raise your voice. I'm not talking about anarchy. I'm not talking about chaos and looting. I'm talking about a time to not settle down, a time to speak up, a time to care, a time to confront, and a time to be courageous enough to change. One step at a time, one day at a time. For all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So Jesus, find in us the unwillingness to do nothing. Fix our hearts. Change our minds. Heal our land. We want it to be true, what wasn't true when it was written, and what still isn't true today, that there might be in this nation liberty and justice for all. And I pray we would be a part of the reconciliation you unleashed at the cross.